Good evening, gentlefolk, and welcome to a brand new series of Uneasy Dreams. Now, I never studied classics at school, because I'm not a Tory, but I did once take a Club 18-30 to 30 trip to Corfu, which is kind of the same thing. You might say this story is the result of that, or perhaps it came from reading the Odyssey right before falling asleep after eating some dodgy moussaka. Nobody. Do me a favour, Muse, and tell through me the story of a woman cursed by fate, how she arrived on these Minoan shores, and where she wandered, wine-mad and alone. Sing for us what she saw and who she met, and keep it snappy, Muse, we've things to do. A ray of sunlight squeezed beneath the blind and poked her in the eye. She woke in pain, a dullness in her skull and every joint subject to its own crick. For half a minute she couldn't think where in the world she was, until the tang of pomace spirit reared up from her belly. Malia, she thought. Spur of the moment type of thing it was. Was Simon here? Of course not. Stupid thought. The moment summer holidays began, she'd known she couldn't bear it. Every hour of every day, not just weekends, his glare, each time she poured herself a drink. Him in the spare room on the single bed, not much more than a box room, really. She alone in their room, on the Queen, still on her side. She hadn't even told him she was going. Don't think about it. Yesterday was bad. The flight was standard peanuts and white wine, a sunny day in England when she'd left. Then every mile a little cloudier, a little darker till they touched the ground again, Heraclean, and all at once the rain began. Not fresh rain like at home, but dirty, sandy rain that left each window besmeared with dust. It came from Africa, the taxi driver had explained, Egypt or Libya, then as he'd driven her along the coast, she'd looked out at the sea and found it lacking. Wine dark, they had called it. It wasn't wine dark, it was muddy green, and speckled now with dirt, same as the road. When, half an hour later, they arrived outside the Hotel Utis, she felt sick with disillusion. At the check-in counter, the man had rolled the R, saying her name, Moira. In England, she'd have thought it sweet, but here it emphasised her foreignness. The hotel room was fine, all beige and clean. Her windows didn't look out at the sea, but at the pool, now empty in the rain. The sun had set, a tantalising hint of purple glow discernible behind the clouds before it went. She had a thirst. What kind of thing do people drink in Crete? she asked the hotel barman. From the shelf he took an unmarked bottle, loosely corked and full of clear liquid. He pulled the cork and poured a measure for her. What is it? Sicudia, he told her. Cretan drink is kind of brandy made from leftovers. 
the mush that's left behind from winemaking. She took a sip. It tasted strong and clean. She drained the glass and nodded for another. It wasn't busy in the bar and she could make out clearly each conversation. One table held a family, English, two boys, both under ten, a mum and dad. They all ate egg and chips. The boys complained about not being outside in the pool. Don't whinge at me, said mum. I didn't choose the weather. In a booth, a couple sat. Their skins a matching bronze, hair bleached by sun, not either of them older than eighteen. They might have been in one of Moira's classes. They spoke in mutters. Not a sentence passed without a kiss between. It grieved her so. Once for the missing kisses of that age when she had been as chaste as ice, and once for now and the quietus of her marriage. She asked the barman for a pen and took a napkin from a stack upon the bar. In bleeding letters, she composed a sonnet. If you're in love in public, you deserve to be put in a pillory and stoned out in the village square to think the nerve these people have. If you've been left alone against your will, you ought to be issued a monetary restitution or the guilty party rabidly pursued by hungry dogs. What else is justice for? And if you've never been in love, just count your lucky stars. You've got away scot-free, and don't, for God's sake, let any amount of lust or liking pin you up the tree. A life of crime, they tell us, doesn't pay, and yet we're all offenders anyway. Not bad, she thought. For half-cut, anyway. Another rueful missive for the stack. More sour doggerel to be discreetly collated in her vast portfolio to gather dust until her death, then burn. She drained her glass and caught the barman's eye. He poured one more, then one more. Then one more. By morning time, the rain clouds burned away and Sunshine's golden finger rudely came in through the window, as we have discussed, and Moira woke, thick-headed and inflamed. Though crapulently heliophobus, she hadn't flown across the bloody sea to play Miss Havisham. She slathered on a coat of Garnier Ambre Solaire and donned sunglasses and a floppy hat. Besides the pool she lay, hour after hour, an airport paperback draped o one knee but seldom read, a brisk walk taken each half hour to fetch a cocktail from the bar and fortified with grapefruit juice and gin and numbed by sunlight, Moira felt herself relax. She thought perhaps she'd take a dip a little while from now. Before she knew it, the pool was filled with other hotel guests and scarce a width was clear. Oh well, she thought. Her barflies from the night before were there, the English family, the boys a squawk in rubber rings, the couple she had watched with bitterness. By day, in trunks, the lad was spindly, and the girl thick in the thighs, festooned with cellulite. That cheered her up. And other holidayers had arrived, a group of half a dozen young adults, their early twenties, Moira guessed, were out. Four girls, two boys, and Irish brogues the lot. They took up all the deep end on their own. The lads took turns at diving off the board in half burlesques of the Olympic style, adept enough to counter showing off and yet delivered with a knowing grin. 
The English children, awed by these athletics, began to imitate them clumsily. Their mother, catching sight of this display, called out across the pool for them to stop. It isn't deep enough, you'll break your necks! Receiving no reply, she rolled her eyes. They'll break their bleeding necks, she told their dad. He grunted, half asleep. Do you mind if I... The brim of Moira's hat was in her eyes. She lifted it. One of the Irishmen was stood in front of her, gesturing to the empty sunbed next to her. She smiled. All yours? He sat. A puddle of water began to trickle from his sodden trunks and soak the sunbaked tiles. He looked embarrassed, as if he'd wet himself. Don't have a towel, he said by way of explanation. Here, said Moira, handing him her own. Don't worry, it's not used. He took it. Thanks. I'm sure I wouldn't worry if it were. His name, she learned, was Connor, 24 and from Kildare. He and his friends had met at university in Dublin. Now, though all in different towns and jobs, they got together for a trip each summer. Moira responded with the barest facts. O-level English teacher, here alone. At this, he flashed a brief, bewildered face, before inviting her to join his group that night on their adventures in the town. She placed a flattered hand upon his knee and graciously declined. That afternoon, she thought she might explore her environs and left the hotel. First, she wandered north along Democritus Street until she found the beach the water calm and blue, refreshed by sunshine. Some three hundred feet beyond the shore an islet could be seen. A single building stood upon its rocks, a chapel from the looks of it. How quaint, thought Moira. Then, through squinted eyes, she saw a figure walking through the chapel door. The vicar, she supposed. Where does he live? Is that his only job, or does he serve a proper church and keep this on the side? She found herself unsettled. Time to drink. Back on Democritus, going south, her eye out for a likely bar, she passed by nightclubs waiting for the sun to set, by cafes boasting proper English food, and caffeineos with their soupy brew, like coffee's thicker brother. Then... A shop attracted her attention. Souvenirs and spirits read a sign above the door. She entered. Bottles. Bottles everywhere. A thousand bottles, every surface stocked. Liqueurs and liquors, quarts of Cretan plonk. But one thing missing. She approached the till. Do you have any of that... What's its name... The brandy thing that comes from here. You know. Sicudia, the seller said. Not here. Are you sure? I wanted to bring some home with me. A couple bottles. We don't have. Why not? Because not. No Sicudia, okay? He turned away without another word and disappeared into the back. So rude, thought Moira. Then she saw a rack upon the counter stacked with miniatures, a cocktail bar for elves, whiskey and gin, Cointreau, creme de cassis, blue curacao. 
She opened up her purse and stuffed them in, as many as would fit, and promptly fled. At dinner time, she ate with glee a squid. She thought it would come whole, eight legs and all still wriggling perhaps among the salad. It came instead as battered rings with chips. She washed it down with house rosé. She'd had a rather splendid day, all told, and thought of Simon only fleetingly of that. It helped, of course, that she'd been gently pissed the whole day long. The sky was violet now. She wandered aimlessly the Cretan streets as music filtered out from bars and clubs like thunder over distant seas. Her feet were sore, her sandals rough between her toes. Before she'd made her mind up to return to Hotel Utis, someone called her name. Parading up the strip, she saw her friend, the Irishman. What was his name? Colin. No, Callum. Cauliflower. Ah, Connor. The Celtic sextet in their finery, board shorts and buttoned short sleeves for the gents, the ladies miniskirted and high-heeled. They greeted Moira effervescently, their voices overlapped and indistinct and sweet, a butterscotch cacophony. As one, they bid her join them. She declined. Unanimously, they let out a wail, like kindergartners denied a treat. She modestly rebuffed them. Honestly, you wouldn't want a pensioner like me, a geriatric, in your company. I must retire and no more cramp your style even a moment longer. Don't be daft. Come out with us. We'll not have you refuse. I couldn't. Yes, you could. I couldn't. Could. She put up all the fights she knew she ought before relenting. How the music blared, and how the lights bedazzled. She was never the type to dance, boozed up or not, and yet in quarters close as these her body pressed against a hundred others, mingling sweat, sardines in oil. It just made sense, no point in being there and lurking at the side. Besides, her friends were here and wanted her to dance as they were dancing, and to drink as they were drinking little plastic shots of something pink and viscous, bubblegum, in liquid form perhaps. It did the job at any rate and suffocated those pervasive thoughts of doubt that lingered still. Her foolishness, the sheer absurdity of being here at her age and alone, because she was alone now, wasn't she? The shots to call those feelings clean away and let her dance some more. What fun, what joy. And oh, thank fuck we're leaving. At the beach... She caught her breath and watched them paddling, and Connor, noticing her, sat alone, hung back, and joined her. "'Are you glad you came?' "'Quite glad,' she told him. "'And I'm glad you did. "'A handsome fellow in his way. "'Fair-haired. "'A youthful chubbiness about the cheeks contrasted with his footballer's physique.' A million miles from Simon's sullen form, the constant hunch, the beetle-browed visage. It might be nice to kiss him, mightn't it? To have him over to her room, and then... She wasn't that much older, anyhow. Not like he was a virginal naïf and she a Circean seductress. Please. 
He wouldn't have invited her along if not for thinking, wanting such a thing. He probably liked them older. That's his type, and they all knew it, knew what he was after. She leaned in for a kiss. He pulled away. That's odd. He must have been confused. Again, she caught him this time. Then he stopped and pulled away once more. I, um, I think... A cry of discord sounded from the water. The girls were looking at her, mouths agape. Did she just try to shift him? Bloody cheek! Get out of it, you wagon! Leave her be, said Connor. But they marched upon the sand, a drunken army. Nerve are you! They jeered and grabbed their fellow's arm and hauled him off. The manky slut, she heard one of them say. Then they were gone, and Moira left alone. She sat there in a daze for quite some time, not really feeling anything. The sea, a night-blue liquid mirror, lapped the shore, the waves' white noise. Eventually she stood and walked out to the water. In she went, not stopping to unsheathe her sandaled feet. The water deepened just up to her breast, then levelled out. The seaweed brushed her calves as, moonwalking, she came towards the islet. She clambered up the rocks and onto sand. Above her stood the chapel, white and calm, a rounded doorway, and a window, square, were all there was to see on its facade. She tried the door and found it wouldn't yield. The window pane was loose and slid right out. She pushed herself up on the sill and slid a leg inside. When nothing bit it off, she let the other follow and dropped in. Her eyes needed a minute to adjust. As soon as they had filtered out the gloom, she found herself surrounded, stood amongst a nesting flock of mismatched bottles. What? They carpeted the ground, a hundred bottles, at least that many, all of them reclaimed. Some meant for wine, some milk or orange juice, some ornamental. Each one of them filled with something colourless. Stood on a pew, a metal barrel probably meant for oil, hooked up with piping to a little tank, and in the air a most familiar smell. Secudia. She'd found a homemade still. Without delay, she picked a bottle up, pulled out the cork and put it to her lips. Secudia. It was Secudia. She tiptoed over to a pew and sat, and drank, and drank, and drank, and drank, and drank. Now, help me to remember, Muse, the end. How she awoke in darkness even though she felt the sunlight on her tender skin. How even when she fumbled to the door and pulled herself back through the window frame and landed in the daylight, it was dark. Explain to me again how what she drank was fortified with methyl alcohol by clueless bootleggers. And tell me, Muse, what happened when to England she returned?
devoid of sight. Did Simon meet her there?